Well, last week I began the sermon by offering up two confessions. One, confession number one, I have no actual musical ability, and this was what drew me to the patterns of, of drumming um, and rhythm because I can't, I don't know, notes, I can't hear anything like that. Number two, Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is an intimidating passage for me to speak on because it's so perfectly powerful and so powerfully perfect. Passages like that intimidate me. Well, confession time is not over. I have one more for you today. My confession is this. When I started writing my sermon last week, I never intended it for, for it to be a two-parter. I always like my sermons to begin with an illustration about my main point, and then we, we do the reading, and I explain the text, and then we finish with a practical application that you can take home with you and apply to your head or heart, or at least go downstairs and make fun of me of during coffee time, whatever. Both are good. But that's my normal flow and pattern. That's all fine and good. But the problem is we never did that last week. I I talked a lot about Greek words, and I mentioned rhythms and patterns a lot, and I connected 5 to 11 with passages prior to that that Paul had spoken about. But we never got to the personal application part. I realized I wasn't going to have time to add it when I was about five pages into what turned out to be a seven-page sermon. So I just said, forget it. Part one will be academic. It will be to fill up your mind with things that may or may not be useful. And I'll write a part two that will be applicable. I broke my pattern. I, I like to end with that, but I broke my pattern. Whatever that happens. And maybe it's actually for the best. Because by breaking from my regular pattern, it allowed for the practical application to have the time it deserves. I usually keep the practical application portion short. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Partly because I often feel really silly spelling out for you, this is what you need to know, because you're more intelligent than I am in many ways. And I don't like explicitly saying this is what it's saying for you, because Scripture actually speaks to different people in different ways. But there are principles we can take home, and so I do a little bit of that. But this passage is a little different. Philippians 2, 5 to 11, and, well, really, we should include the paragraphs immediately before and after this poem, because it all flows together. But Philippians 2 is just so fundamental to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's like, and it so clearly lays out the pattern for his attitude and his actions, that it definitely deserves a much deeper examination as far as practical application is concerned. If Philippians 2 lays out the power of the divine pattern as revealed in Jesus, then we, as disciples, tasked with imitating and emulating that pattern, taking on that pattern and replicating it in our own lives, then we had better study the rhythm being laid down a little closer here than we might in in some other portions of Scripture. So yeah, I'm breaking from my regular sermon pattern. Please excuse that. But as with drumming, breaking from the pattern when you're playing a beat and then you do something else and come back to the beat, that only serves to emphasize the power and the beauty of the foundational pattern. That's true here. I I hope that we will see how we are called to break from our normal human patterns. There's going to be a lot of contrasting in the sermon between us and Jesus. How we can break from our normal human patterns and how breaking from our own self-centered patterns will bring glory to the Savior who's the one setting the beat. So let's reread. Chapter 2, verses 2 to 11. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and being in human likeness, or sorry, being made in human likeness, 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's the pattern. That's the pattern we looked at last week. Jesus sets the pattern. He began as God. He forsook, forsaked, he chose to forsake equality with God. He became not just human, but the lowest status of human. He, be- he became a status loaded with identities of obedience and submission and powerlessness. He became a slave. And then, the lowest of the low, not only did our supreme creator willfully die as a slave, but he died the most shameful, scornful, humiliating death of all, death on a cross. However, because of this, God elevated the name of his servant Jesus to the most exalted place and bestowed on him all the power and authority that he had emptied of himself in the first place. So we started here, kept going lower and lower, chose to keep going lower and lower to to set the pattern. And because of that, God elevated him right back up and not, yeah, there's debate about whether he's as high as he was, or even higher. doesn't matter. He's back up in the, the place of glory and honor that he deserves because he emptied himself. So that's it. That's the pattern. That's what we are called to believe, to internalize, and to represent with all that we do. So we too, if we are to follow the pattern, then we too must first sacrifice the equality that we share with God, and we too must empty ourselves of our power as supreme creators. Wink, we aren't that. And we too must step into first century Palestine and then die a torturous death at the hands of a bunch of Italians. That's the task. Follow every step of the pattern that Jesus laid out step by step, right? Replicate it precisely? No, obviously not. It's a little trickier than that. Because first of all, none of that would ever or could ever happen to us exactly like it happened to Jesus. We did not begin equal with God as he did. We cannot empty ourselves of divine power because we have none to empty ourselves of, except what he fills us with. We're a little late for first century Palestine, and despite what your neighbor's Facebook posts might tell you, Trudeau's Liberal Party have no plans to outlaw Christianity and torture you until you deny your faith. That will not be happening. So our situation is obviously not exactly similar to Jesus's. Heck, it's not even at all similar to the Apostle Paul who is writing this passage. So how exactly... Do we replicate the pattern of Philippians 2 if our circumstances are completely different from the pattern maker? How do we step into this pattern that he's established when our circumstances look nothing like his? It's tricky. Well, before we get into the principles of application, I have three background truths that inform this question, that inform our desire to explore and apply the the patterns of Philippians 2. These background truths make the overwhelming task of modeling our lives after Jesus more palatable without stripping away any of the struggle associated with striving for the mindset of Jesus. And make no mistake, it is a struggle. It doesn't do any good to deny that following the pattern set by Jesus is hard. Because it is hard, right? Following Jesus is hard. And patterning our lives after his takes a lot of hard work, takes a lot of sacrifice, takes a lot of submission, and we're not good at those things. So it doesn't do any good to just say, that's eh, not, not so bad. No, it's hard. And so these three background truths, I think, will help take some of the sting away, I hope, if that makes sense. 
the expectations are sky high and the stakes are enormous, but these background truths will hopefully bring uh, courage and clarity as we pattern our lives after his. Does that make sense? So these aren't necessarily the applications. These will just make the applications easier to, to bear and to understand. So background truth number one. Despite what I just said, our situation isn't so different from Jesus after all. In fact, our situation is more like a contrasting mirror image to Jesus rather than an opposing image. It's more like, you know, how when pictures haven't developed, white looks black and black looks white, yellows look blue. and It's more like that. It's a contrast. The contrast is this. Jesus really did possess equality with God. We don't, but we think we do. We live our entire self-absorbed lives as though we are equal to God. Jesus really possessed eternal power. We don't. But we strive for and cling to every little scrap of power that we can get a hold of. Jesus lived and ministered in an empire and a religious setting that sought to squash him. We don't. We live and minister in a setting where our religion and our empire are constantly playing footsie with each other, often getting in bed together in ways that do a grotesque disservice to Christ himself. It's a lot of the same things, but twisted, our circumstances, contrasting. To put it differently, some people think that this poem serves as a contrast between Adam and Jesus. Adam, as in Genesis 2 and 3, Adam, Adam coveted equality with God. Jesus forfeited equality with God. Adam grasped the fruit of our, of, of selfish desire, while Jesus refused to grasp. Remember we studied that word harpegmon last week? Harpegmon means to seize and to take advantage of. It's a really brutal word, actually. Jesus refused to grasp because of selfless obedience. Adam was all about grasping. Adam was a fleshly thing made in God's image, like we are. Jesus was a godly thing who took on human likeness, took on the image of humanity. And as we looked at last week, when it says image of or likeness of or appearance of, that doesn't mean he was pretending. He fully became those things. There's some imperfections in this contrast, but that makes some sense. Adam set the pattern for humanity, which Jesus undoes and sets a new, greater pattern. Philippians 2 draws attention to that contrast. But the point of background truth number one is this. Although our situation is a dark contrast to our master's situation, the pattern is the same. We're not off the hook. Even though it's a completely different set of circumstances, the purpose of the pattern remains the same. We still need to recognize that equality with God is something we could never grasp. We still need to empty ourselves of the vain and self-serving desire for power. We still need to navigate how to glorify him in a cold, hostile world. Everything that was true of Jesus is what we think is true of ourselves. We think we're equal with God. We think we're powerful. We're not those things. And there's real freedom when we come to the fundamental understanding that we are not God, but Jesus is. We are like Adam. We are not like God. But our purpose is no different than his was. And by his, I mean Jesus's and Adam's. The purpose is the same. Bring glory to God. That's the, the purpose is the same. So we still need to follow the pattern. So that's background truth number one. Our situation is totally different from Jesus, but we're still called to follow the pattern. Background truth number two comes directly out of the first. Following the pattern is not a black and white issue. Christians like black and white. We like black and white a lot. We like to know that we are in the right and everybody else is in the wrong. We like to say this is how it is and everybody else has got it wrong. 
Christians like that a lot. I used to be very black and white. But the more I fell into the rhythms of Jesus' grace and love, the more I came to see that discipleship is very gray. It is very, very gray. That's not to say that there isn't right and wrong. That would be a preposterous thing for me to say. I'm not saying that. It's just to say that our culture and our society are very different than the one Jesus lived in or the one that Paul writes to. It's very different. Sometimes applying the pattern to our situation can be very tricky. And that's okay. There's tension between freedom and obedience. There's tension between justice and grace. There's tension between rules and relationships, right? And it's hard to know how the pattern fits in these continuums. Empires come and go. Morality itself morphs and changes, but God does not change. His character and nature are exactly the same. And what is his character and nature? Well, we just read it in Philippians 2. Not only does he never change, but our purpose never changes. In all that we say and do, we are called to bring glory to Jesus. It's just that that isn't quite always as straightforward as we may think. Now, that may sound like relativism, like anything goes. It's not. Anything does not go. What goes is what fits the pattern of our life conforming to the pattern of Jesus' life. That's what goes. And finally, background truth number three which links the first two together and is the real source of courage and clarity, we are not doing this alone. And not only do I mean I'm surrounded by my fellow musk oxen, if you remember my sermon from last month, not only am I surrounded by my fellow musk oxen who strengthen me and empower me, but we are fed, fueled, and founded upon the Holy Spirit. He is the flame that guides us and stokes our passionate purpose. takes a lot of pressure off us when we realize that the person whose pattern we're attempting to emulate is actually taking up personal and communal residence within our hearts. That he is the one, as Lisa said in communion, he is the water that we drink that that fuels us, that gets rid of waste, that, what was the other ones? Absorbs, yes, absorbs the nutrients of the word. He is the one who enables that. He is the power that makes this happen. Not us, not me. If it was up to me, it'd be failure immediately. Thankfully, he fuels me. So I think there's a lot of comfort and clarity in knowing that he's the one guiding. And when it comes to point number two, that it's not all black and white, well, thankfully, we have him guiding us into what is right and good. So those three background truths inform the task of discipleship. Though our circumstances are nothing like Jesus's, the pattern is the same. Applying the pattern is not a black and white matter, but the finer points, even though they may differ from culture to culture, even person to person, the main principles of the pattern are rock solid and are unchanging. And ultimately, we can find hope and peace and joy in knowing that the Holy Spirit is within us, like me, and within us, because faith is a community thing, helping and empowering us as we succeed or fail at following the pattern laid out by our master. So that informs all that. All right. With all that having been said, let's dig in. Or as my good friend Nacho Libre would say. So anyways, let's get down to the nitty gritty. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. That's that's the thing, Trish. That's that's all. Yeah. Um, Angie and I and, and Trish, we love Nacho Libre. So anytime I can quote Nacho Libre, I'm going to quote Nacho Libre. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. How can we apply the pattern of Philippians 2 to our own lives? I've got five principles to dig into. They won't be. I know you're like, five? Five more? Okay, take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. I think this is important. So we're going to get into it. They're not super long. 
Each one is a study of contrast between our human nature and Jesus' divine nature, which we probably won't explore. For I had a case study ready. I think we'll skip that. But first I'm going to turn up the fans. Want to take another quick stretch? Go ahead. But there's five, so you know what you're getting into. And the first two are longer. The next three are quicker. I just don't want you to quit on me, okay? Here we go. Principle number one. It's about humility, not hubris. Now, admittedly, I used a fancy word to make it sound good next to humility. Hubris just means arrogant vanity or foolish pride. Think of a baseball player stepping up to the plate and pointing where he's going to hit that home run and then swing and, and striking out three swings in a row, just completely falling on his face. That's hubris. That's unwarranted pride. Or think of every politician ever the night before the election rallying their faithful supporters, soaking up their applause. I'm so great. I'm so loved. And then the next day they don't win the election. That's hubris. Think of a pastor using the word hubris in his first point to remember. That's hubris. So hubris is what humans are all about. We're all convinced that we are the most important being on the planet, and we live in a way that shows concern only for that most important being, ourselves. Worse yet is the fact that we expect every other person to also believe that we are the most important being on the planet. So there's a problem. Part of this is survival instinct, like an infant crying in agony because he can't reach his Cheerios. Part of it is something like that. But most of it is just plain old human arrogance, ignorance, and self-importance. But there is nothing about Jesus that demonstrates hubris at all. Instead, he exudes humility. Every step he took away from his place in glory was a step of humility. Jesus forfeited his throne over all creation to be born as a baby to a couple of peasants in a filthy barn. He fled, our Savior fled as a refugee to a neighboring country. He grew up as a carpenter's son. He wants nothing against carpenters. It's just a humble profession. Yeah? Hey, man, you are patterning your, patterning your life more after Jesus than I am because you're a carpenter. He once said that although foxes have dens, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He had no income, no savings, and he relied on the kindness of a bunch of traveling women, disciples, who fed him and, and took care of all his needs. He celebrated small things like mustard seeds and sparrows and children. He touched the faces of lepers. He healed the sons of widows. He partied, as we saw today in our passage in Matthew 9. He partied with tax collectors and scummy sinners alike. He washed the feet of his struggling disciples. And he shared his messianic adultery with a Samaritan, adulterous woman. What's he doing talking to her? Well, he loves her like he loves anyone else. And it's to her, this unexpected person, that he reveals he's the Messiah to. All of that is humility. And when it came to die, the humility didn't stop. He subjected himself to scorn and mockery. He was spat on and whipped and nailed through the wrists and feet, naked except for a contemptuous crown of thorns, raised above everyone in, in mockery. And even when he, you know, rose from the grave and conquered death, even when he did that, the greatest victory of all time, he still only told a handful of people and made sure that one of the first things he did after rising from the dead was go to uh, encourage a damaged denier named Peter over a quaint breakfast of fish. Pretty humble. Even after, even after the greatest victory in history, he celebrates by going to someone and saying, hey, look, it's okay. Do you love me? I'll give you a third, a, another chance. 
Jesus' entire life, ministry, death, and resurrection demonstrate a character of humility, not hubris. If anyone deserved hubris, it's Jesus. He did nothing for praise and glory, even though he deserved it. He told people to shut up about his greatness. We saw that in Matthew 9 too. Uh, he heals, was it the blind guy or the paralytic guy? He heals somebody and immediately, don't tell anyone about this. And what do they do? Immediately tell everyone about it. He deflected praise back to his father, even though his father would just deflect that praise right back to his son. Everything about Jesus was pure humility. But what about us? For honest with ourselves, is our nature more humility or more hubris? Do we ever do something with the expectation that people will acknowledge how great we are? Do we ever do things, even good things, with the purpose of having people acknowledge how great we are? Because I do that. Do we ever catch ourselves saying, I don't need to do that, someone else can do it, or that's beneath me? Are we motivated by validation and praise? Do we deny other people our time, our energy, our assistance, our compassion, our kindness, because we're worried that associating with that person will lower our status somehow? Do I use my authority to make other people feel small? Are we ever consumed with jealousy? That's hubris. Are we unwilling to apologize or forgive others or admit mistakes? Do we get into things, even good things, just to get things out of it? Because all of that is so human and describes me so clearly, and probably you, certainly you, and all of that is hubris. Patterning myself after Jesus means recognizing I'm not too good for any person or any act of service. If the creator can put on flesh and die by torture like a slave, then I can put my inflamed ego aside and embrace humility a little bit more, I think. I should at least have that attitude. So that's number one. Principle number one, humility, not hubris. Principle number two, giving, not grasping. Jesus worked hard to show that he was patterning himself after his father when he continually gave of himself to serve others. The first public speaking Jesus does in the book of Luke is found in Luke 4. And what he says is he announces his purpose as the Messiah. And that purpose is a quote from Isaiah, which reads, He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's certainly a lot of humility there, as we'd expect, but there's also a definite sense of gifting things to those who are less fortunate. The gift of good news, the gift of freedom and sight and justice, the gift of grace. He didn't step up to the podium in Nazareth and announce that his father had sent him to execute judgment or to rally the troops of Israel or to seize glory for himself because those things don't fit the pattern. Giving to others fits the pattern. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, which we just read in church here a few weeks ago, Jesus reminds them that their father is a good, loving father who gives good, loving gifts. He gives bread instead of what? Stones. He gives fish instead of snakes. He gives things that are nourishing and beneficial, not things that will destroy us, things that we cannot consume. He's a good dad who gives good gifts. It is in the Father's nature to give freely without expectation of joyful reception, because how often are we actually thankful for the gifts we get? He's a Father who gives freely without expectation of praise, even though he's worthy of it. 
He's a father who gives freely without expectation that he will ever be reimbursed for his gifts because how could we ever reimburse him for all the gifts he gives us? And still he gives freely. He just gives and gives and gives and his son does the same. Jesus would often be confronted by lowly suffering people who would say, if it's your will, you can heal me. And Jesus would look at them and say, of course it's my will. Because of your faith, you are healed. Saw a very similar story in our reading in Matthew 9 just today. Because of your faith, you are made well. Not because you're great, not because you're important, but because you are valued by your creator. Of course, of course, of course he's willing to give. That's his pattern. That's his purpose. But we, on the other hand, are less about giving and more about grasping. That's that tricky Greek word, harpegmon, grasping, holding on to, taking advantage of, seizing something for our own benefit. The world is full of examples like that. There's some big picture ones I was going to get into. Buying cheap clothes is fine, but how are those clothes cheap? Well, somebody gets paid pennies a day in basically forced labor to make your cheap shirt for you, to make my cheap shirt for me. Corporations exist like psychopaths. They are designed to cut every corner, no matter the human cost, in pursuit of profit margins. They are not people. They are legally entitled to all the rights of people, believe it or not. But if they're people, they behave like total psychopaths. They exist to destroy. Every form of bigotry, racism, and injustice is a form of harpegmon. The reason why people in power stamp out equality for others who are different than them is so that they can retain power for themselves. To the privileged, equality feels like oppression. Raising somebody up to your height feels like an affront when you are in power. And so we, to hold on to that power, we deny those rights. This has and often is true in this part of the world against women. First Nations people, LGBTQ people, Muslim people, or anyone of any faith other than ours. People of African origin, people of Asian origin. The list goes on and on and on. Sadly, goes on and on and on. And if you heard any of those groupings and thought, well, they don't deserve the same rights as me, do they? Well, then I think you need to question how much you are harpegmon, grasping onto rights for yourself and denying them for others. That's not the model that Jesus gave. And rights, the issue of rights is where this thing, giving, not grasping, is most commonly found in our world today. Rights. We have a lot of rights. We're very blessed to live in a country that recognizes and stands up for our personal rights. It's a good thing. We fought for these rights. The problem is we fight for our rights and forget to also fight for the rights of our neighbor. We demand our rights and refuse to budge for them, no matter the cost to people around us. Think of gun rights to the south of us. The rest of the world shakes their head about that, but the rest of humanity is no better. We demand our own rights and then bypass the rights of others to get what we feel we deserve. That is grasping. That is not giving. Bless you, Yella. And I mean that. Blesses on you. Blessings on you, Yella. Our pattern maker gave freely of his time, his power, his possessions, his compassion, and ultimately his salvation. He was never repaid because he never could be repaid. He just gave and gave and gave. He forfeited his rights as the son of God. The greatest right you could ever have is to sit at the right hand of God. He gave up that right and refused to grasp on to his lofty privileges. He could have and would have deserved to, but he didn't. He gave up his rights. He refused to grasp. He continually gave of himself. And if we are to pattern ourselves after him, we must be marked by continual selfless giving as well. So don't worry just about your own rights. Don't worry about just what you can get. That's all fine and good. 
The first priority, as Paul says in, what is it, verse 3, look out for the interests of others first. That's how you follow the pattern. That's an attitude, by the way, that extends far beyond our wallet. This giving. Giving is not just a money thing. It extends far beyond the wallet. Jesus didn't have a wallet. His wallet was a live fish. Somebody said, can we pay the tax? Jesus said, sure, I have no money. Go look in that fish. And there was a coin in the fish. His wallet was a fish. He didn't have a wallet, but still he gave relentlessly instead of grasping selfishly. Principle number three, power through love and lowliness, not prestige and profits. Now, oh shoot, I forgot. I had a handout for you guys. Would anybody like a handout? Trish, would you mind passing these notes? Sorry. I was just thinking, I don't see anybody filling in their handouts. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, the first two are up there. Humility, not hubris. Giving, not grasping. And I left a little space there for you to, to write any notes if you wanted. And principle three is this, power through love and lowliness, not prestige and profits. And by the way, is this beginning to look radically different from the world as we understand it? Because it should. Because the world is very broken. And we are the ones called to redeem this broken world. And so the pattern that we model ourselves after should look vastly, radically different from the world. And so principle three is power through love and lowliness, not prestige and profits. Since these, all five of these principles that I'll eventually be finished with, since they all blend together, I've already touched on this a little bit in my anti-corporate rant from several minutes ago. Power in this world is something seen to be seized, something to be consolidated, something to be fortified and defended at all costs. Power is, uh, in, in this world is seen through such measurable metrics as cultural taste making. If you're a cultural taste maker, you have power. Salary figures determine your power. Military displays determine your power. Social visibility dis- determines your power. Access to privileges determines your power. In this world, power is all about prestige and profits. Worldly power is about controlling others for your own benefit. In our individualistic, consumeristic, corporately dominated world, power has no place for empathy, compassion, or sacrifice. It's all take and no give, and we just see that that is not the pattern with Jesus at all. Instead, Jesus, who had privileged access to more power than we can ever fathom, demonstrated his power in selfless, caring ways. He showed his power over the natural world by calming storms. But did he do that just to brag? Hey, guys. Hey, look what I can do. Storm, knock it off. See how it stopped? I'm pretty great. He didn't calm storms just to show off. He calmed storms so that his disciples would, A, not have any fear, and B, come to understand who he really is. He did it for them. He showed his power over the natural world by healing crippled legs so that they could once again leap in praise. He opened blind eyes so that they could behold God's goodness. He didn't do those things to show off. He did those things for others. He didn't do it to consolidate power for himself. He did it to share power with others. He showed his power over the supernatural world by casting out demonic powers. By the way, what do demonic powers do? How did you know you were possessed by a demon? Well, they grasped and controlled you. 
That's what a demon does, grasps and controls you. The very antithesis to who Jesus is. And so Jesus released that. And he did so with merely a word. Sometimes he didn't even have to say a word. Sometimes he'd be walking by and a demon would be like, "Uh uh-oh, there's the son of God. Can you send us into pigs? So he would. Sometimes he wouldn't even need to, to say who he was. They just knew. He showed his power over the natural world, over the supernatural world. He even showed his power over death and sin by crushing them under his heel as the stone rolled away and his pierced body rose from lowliness to glory. He conquered even death and sin. Oh, he was powerful, all right, but that power could never be measured by profitability. He had no money, and everyone who followed him was martyred. Doesn't sound very profitable from from a worldly standpoint. Follow him, give up all you have, and then you'll die. Wonderful. Where's the profit? His power can never be measured by prestige either. Think of the company that he kept. He hung out with lowly people, sinners. And he constantly clashed with the religious tastemakers and the power mongers of his day. If he was going for prestige, he failed. Because he hung out with people like you and me. And people even lowlier than you and me. Even though that's not really a thing. The pattern of Philippians 2 is to see power in a new light. Unlike the broken world we reside in, power is not measured in prestige or profits. It's measured by our capacity to embrace lowliness and demonstrate our Father's love. The more faithful we are, the more forceful we are, but that forcefulness is used for the good of others, not for the benefit of ourselves. As we said last week, Jesus didn't dominate others to demonstrate power. He died for others to demonstrate his power. That's the pattern of Jesus. Lowliness and love, not prestige and profit. Principle number four, righteousness is a present from God, not a prize for goodness. Righteousness is a present from God, not a prize for goodness. You want proof of this? It's me. I'm your proof. I am utterly unworthy of the presence of God. I am fallen, broken, sinful, corrupt. I know this. I'm not depreciating myself. I just know that's who I am. I am certainly not a poster child for goodness. I am not the most good person you know. Yet I am righteous. And you are the same. How is this possible? Well, remember how we said that our Father is a giver and not a taker? That's true of salvation as well. And salvation cannot be attained without righteousness. And since we can never be righteous enough for this equation, God gifted righteousness upon us when he sent his son to pay for it himself. But here's the thing. Even Jesus himself never earned his righteousness. And I'm very specific about that word, earned. Even Jesus himself never earned his righteousness. It's a fine point, but the language of Philippians 2 is such that Jesus didn't resurrect himself and then stroll up to God and say, so how about that, uh, how about that eternal glory and authority now, Pops? I've done all you asked. Now I deserve to have righteousness and glory, right? Well, Jesus didn't do that. Even for Jesus, who was righteous in every way and completely deserving, even Jesus had to wait for his Father to give him the name that is above all names. Jesus never earned his righteousness because righteousness is not a thing that could be bought and bartered. Righteousness is not something you can sell or buy. It's not a reward for good behavior. That's not what righteousness is. It's not a reward for good behavior. It's a gift from our God who loves giving gifts that we could never repay, like righteousness. So what does this mean in practical terms? Well, I think it means we should work harder, but toil less. And again, that's a fine point too. But work in scripture is a good thing. 
while toil distorts work into a joyless, crushing grind. If it's true that God has gifted us with salvation and righteousness, that should make us want to work harder for him, not out of obligation, but out of appreciation. Right? If, in fact, he has done this for me, I want to repay him somehow, even though I never could repay him, but I still want to work for him. I want to serve him. I want to be there for him. If he's done this for me, I want to be there for him. That's work. Work is good. It should focus us. It should drive us to bring him the glory he deserves. But even if we work more, we should toil less. That is, we should never get caught in the trap of thinking that righteousness is something we'll get if we just do more things. That the harder we work, the more righteous we are. No, that's not how it works. We cannot work for our righteousness. We also cannot work off our righteousness. Work it off like it's something that we've got and now we've got to pay for it. We can only work in response to our righteousness. If we toil away at righteousness, we begin to look more and more like Pharisees, tabulating our good deeds on some notebook somewhere and expecting that to save us. It robs us of the joy of service and leads us to worship our own goodness rather than the supreme goodness of Jesus. Righteousness is a present to be given, not a prize to be won. And that subtle difference, I think, changes everything about this pattern. And finally, principle number five. This is the shortest one. All of this, the humility, the giving, the power through love and lowliness, the, the righteousness as a gift from God, all of that leads to glory. All of it leads to glory. Selfish ambition Material accumulation and proud legalism, on the other hand, the things that the world says will lead to glory, they don't lead to glory. They lead to destruction. Paul doesn't end his passage with Jesus the slave bleeding from the cross, does he? I mean, he kind of builds towards that. That's his crescendo. But following that, Jesus doesn't stay up on the cross in Philippians 2 or in actual human history. It ends with victory. That victory came through the selfless pattern he demonstrated in both life and death. If we, too, wish to know that victory, we need to also break from the self-centered patterns of this world and step to the rhythms of grace and peace. We need to empty ourselves and embrace humility. We need to let go of our egos and our vanities and our rights, and we need to give relentlessly to those around us. We need to demonstrate a new kingdom power that looks absolutely nothing like the power that this world craves, a power we only have access to, The right kind of power is the the power that we only have access to when we seek the lowly and loving nature of Christ. It's the only way we can access that power. The, The lower we go, the higher we get lifted up. Those who are last shall be first. That's the pattern of glory. First comes suffering and smallness and sacrifice and submission. All those S words that the world hates. First comes those things, then comes Jesus. And when Jesus comes, Glory comes. Victory comes. And in the end, that's what all of this is about. It's about Jesus. It's about taking up the same mindset he had, a mindset of selflessness, of valuing others above ourselves, and looking out for the interests of others, as Paul says in verses 3 and 4. It's a powerful pattern. It's a hard pattern, but it's a powerful pattern, and one with endless daily opportunities for exploration and elaboration. But we always need to snap back to the purpose of that rhythm. And the purpose is to bring glory to Jesus. We do that through humility, not hubris. We do that through giving, not grasping. Through the power of love and loneliness, not profit and prestige. 
We do that by imitating his slave-like obedience and selflessness. We reject the rhythms of this world that tell us to consume and abuse and cling to our rights and demand things at the expense of others. We refuse that. We reject it. We reject the rhythms of this religion that tell us righteousness can be worked for or worked off with toilsome legalism and morality. We reject that. We know that we can't work for our salvation. It's a gift. And we look forward to the gift that's to come for those who take this pattern seriously. We look forward to victory and glory. We look forward to bowing before our king and proclaiming his great name, the name so great that at that name, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue confess that he is king. He is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. That's why. So that God would be glorified. He received that name for his powerful pattern of loving sacrifice and selfless service. The powerful pattern that we're called to step into as well. Now I was planning to read Matthew 12 and contrast all these patterns of Jesus, humility, giving, powerful love, righteous service against the pattern of the Pharisees, which is us to the extreme, the Pharisees. And their hubris, they're grasping their worldly power, their self-righteousness, but we don't have time. So maybe part three? No, just kidding. Um, but I encourage you to read Matthew 12, especially verses 6 to 21, and see if you can spot all the elements of the pattern, both positive and negative, both Jesus's and human. But it's, it's a difficult pattern to, to replicate. It's a pattern that Jesus laid down. But it's the only pattern that makes any sense if you understand who God is. It's the only pattern worthy of our, our time and energy. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you demonstrated for us so beautifully, so perfectly, uh, all these things that the world rejects. You, you demonstrated humility and, and giving and forgiveness and grace. You demonstrated power through your lowliness and your love your sacrifice, and your submission. Father, we thank you for all these things. We praise you for all these things. And Holy Spirit, we trust that you are in us, leading us towards these principles, that you are guiding us closer to the heart of Jesus. Jesus, your name is great. It's the greatest name. And at your name, we will all one day bow. And I pray that we would do so in worship and praise, not in reluctance and forced submission. I pray that we would start bowing to that name today and that our attitude would bring glory to you by stepping in line with your pattern that you've laid down in Philippians 2 and elsewhere. So we thank you for this powerful and beautiful passage, and I pray that we would take it to heart and and begin to look more and more like you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Somebody said, can we pay the tax? Jesus said, sure, I have no money. Go look in that fish. And there was a coin in the fish. His wallet was a fish. He didn't have a wallet, but still he gave relentlessly instead of grasping selfishly. So anyways, let's get down to the nitty-gritty.